necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. Glad you could join us today. I have my regulars here, uh, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, how are you? Good to be here. <coughs> have you been traveling? Not to, no, okay. not actually. Most of the time you have been. <coughs> Excuse me. And I have certified financial planner professional, retirement income certified professional, David Rudy. David, good morning. Good morning. And I'm happy to announce a newly minted certified financial planner professional. Finally, Ryan Repco just completed his work to get, get all the requirements filled in. So I guess you can wear the badge now. Good morning. I've never seen you smile so big. Well, that just means all the less work I have to do. I'm just already, you know, I just came off of four days in Florida and I got to see what all these retired people, were, how they were living. Hey, it's about time for me, but not really. I have no, in, I don't really, I don't have any hobbies. I don't know what I would do if I was retired. Uh, but anyway, uh, congratulations, Ryan. It's, that's a big deal. Um, Dave, you went through that, <laughs> through the process of getting that CFP, uh, it's what series of uh, exams along the way, and then a, you take a final test at some point, and then uh, it's either two or three years of additional work requirements. Does that pretty much nail it? Yep. I mean, yeah. it sound easy though, don't I? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, it's really the one big exam, but you have to go through the education course before that point and take tests along the way during that. But um, it's really that that one big test at the end that I think is the most challenging part but really it's mostly about putting the time in because the the content is so broad it covers a lot of different areas from like investment to tax to estate planning that there's just a lot to know and keep in your brain at any one point yeah it's it's a pretty comprehensive i you know after 35 years i i i'm not a certified financial planner professional but i'm kind of like well but i'm old you know i have i have 35 years of experience but there really isn't and that and that's probably shouldn't suffice but i figured you know, there's just not too many things i haven't seen uh, i haven't seen anything new in the last 10 years i think would be safe to say but that's pretty much well, it's not pretty much a requirement i made that a requirement when uh, all the guys joined me that uh the, you know at a, you have to have a certified you know the cfp designation uh and then i know a couple of you guys have the ricp which is a little more retirement uh specific uh income streams etc income planning but it's great. It's a big deal. So we're happy about that. I know you're happy about that, aren't you, Ryan? Aren't Very you, happy. Weren't you tired of me saying, and financial advisor, Ryan Repco? And afterthought, Ryan Repco. Yes, the plus one. That's right. And the plus one of the family. You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. Yeah, we also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. And you should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. I think I went to Florida for three days and hung around a bunch of retired people, and I, and I think I need to go from 2.0 on my readers to 2.5. Maybe things are a little blurry today. Uh, well, Fred, uh, state of Illinois, now they're starting to, we're starting to get a glimpse at potential. I guess they're probably just floating. Is that what they're doing? But I noticed... Uh, uh, on it, you didn't have to be a gazillionaire to pay substantially more income tax if the yeah. numbers that are being floated are right. there. Well, it's a two-stage process. Uh, I don't know whether uh, most listeners know, but uh, the General Assembly can't just decide to have a graduated rate progressive tax. It's uh, forbidden now by the Constitution. 
So before they could do anything, there has to be a constitutional amendment approved, which would mean that the General Assembly has to uh, approve it by a substantial majority to place it on the ballot, which would be on the ballot in uh, 2020. And then if it were approved there, then the General Assembly could actually implement a, a graduated rate tax. So it's a, it's a long process. It's not a, by any means a sure process. Even uh, a lot of Democrats are, are hesitant to, uh, to start raising taxes on, on uh, as you said, not, not just uh, millionaires, but people uh, substantially less than that. The, uh, <clears throat> the, the problem, though, which, again, it's not, not unique to the Prisoner Administration, is that uh, uh, the pain is always a couple years in the future. Okay. The, the spending is right now. So even though they're not going to raise taxes for uh, probably two years, uh, they are still going ahead with a lot of uh, spending activities uh, that they're going to uh, – not fund the pitches fully, things of that sort. So they're, they're going ahead as if they had the money, but they don't really have the money. The other thing which people don't don't really uh, realize, and this is not necessarily saying it's bad, but the minimum wage increase is really like a tax. You're, you're um, making businesses pay more than they otherwise would pay. Now, that, that may be a good idea in some people's mind, but nevertheless, it is a burden on, on business. Oh, I've, I was just talking. I was just down in Florida, and, and a number of the people uh, – or former owners and some current owners of uh, fast food chains, restaurants. Yeah. And they were just telling me, they said, well, we're, we're already putting in kiosks as fast as we can put them in. He said, people don't understand how tough certain businesses are. Right. We all know that restaurants are a tough business. And he says, I, 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 I literally couldn't make money if I had to do it now. Well, especially point. if you're uh, a restaurant in, uh, in Metropolis, Illinois. Oh, sure. I, I mean, the, they, originally they thought about having uh, – uh, different minimum wage levels for different areas, Chicago versus downstate, and they decided not to do that. So again, it's probably not a big deal. It's, it's going to be phased in over a long period, six years or so. And uh, in most cases, Chicago wages are already will be close to that anyway, so it's not a big deal. The real difference between uh, minimum wages now and uh, minimum wages uh, the last 20 years or so is that uh, Congress pretty much followed the uh, wage increases. They would raise the minimum wage when it was pretty much already already above there. This is actually getting out in front and, and forcing businesses to, to pay more. It, it's, it was interesting how many people at this uh, – I went to the Formula One race at a really pretty nice place. And so all the people there, I, you know, I gathered, were pretty well healed. But it was, it was amazing how many of them came from high-income high states, high-income tax states that had recently left just in the last few years and, and, yeah. and moved to Florida. Uh, but I did read an article on the airplane down about how New York is going high tech on really policing this issue of whether you have domicile in New York or not. There are all kinds of strange rules about there's so many days a year and wh what counts and doesn't count. For example, if you fly into Newark and take a taxi to JFK, that doesn't count. Yeah. Uh, but if you stop off and have lunch someplace. looks like a lot of gray area to yeah. me. And that's, and that's what the essence yeah. of this article was saying, yeah. that these states – you're almost kind of like guilty until you prove yeah. your way out of it, and sometimes they just settle and you write a big check, and that's how you get, yeah. you know, official that your domicile is not. Anyway, it's just, uh, and I, and at the same party, there were a number of people from Illinois um, that were saying, 
you know, well, it's only inevitable that once they, if they do, or when they do, I suppose, in, you know, it's just going to push a new wave of yeah. what New York experienced, you know, oh, you know, yeah. raise taxes, raise taxes, you know, and then heaven forbid the billionaires leave. Yeah, it's also, uh, people may not realize, but uh, Illinois taxes capital gains at the full rate, not, not, there's not a special rate like the, the federal government, so... If you have that, plus uh, with a, the Trump tax reform a year and a half ago or so, uh, you could no longer deduct. For most people, wouldn't be able to deduct their um, tax payments from the federal tax. So it's a uh, can be fairly substantial. The other thing, which I think is uh, this is more philosophical than economic, but I'm not sure it's a good thing for the state to say we're going to raise taxes on two percent of the people, so 98 percent of the people could have a, a tax cut. Uh, I don't think that so you're uh, right. They, they have psychological. Re- I don't think the, like, Wait the, the governor's been re- reading uh, the Federalist Papers and James <laughs> Madison and so on, who talked about the, the potential evil of having a majority uh, uh, kind of rule over a minority without th- taking into account the, the consequences. So, again, uh, I think it's uh, a slight progressivity wouldn't be a necessarily bad thing in the, the tax, but I think it has to be done judiciously, and I'm not sure that's, uh, that's being done now. Yeah, I don't think. Most people, I, I could be dead wrong. I don't think most people would fight the idea of a progressive tax. Yeah. I mean, some would, but I think, you know, hey, we're kind of used to that at the federal yeah. system. A lot of states have it already. It seems yeah. to, you know, doesn't seem to differentiate much. Well, the only thing is that uh, it's much easier to leave a state than it is to leave the country. If you don't like so, the so I want to ask you about that, and I don't want, and I'm not here to make the yeah. show that I think people pay too much tax, too little. I'm really, I'm yeah. trying to stay away from uh, my views on this, um, but. I saw just it was a simple chart about, you know, when we had income tax at 70 percent and 90 percent of the top marginal tax rates, the difference it was showing was that the very wealthy pay have very little of their income as wages and much of it is income they can control. So it turns out, you know, they really aren't a lot of them paying these heavy marginal tax rates because unlike people like me or, or my kids, uh, all our wages are dominant part of our wages. I mean, our income and wages, and we we can't control that timing. So it's just yeah. kind of interesting to see that. Right. I mean, the, the, there's kind of a, a constancy of the percent of uh, of uh, income taxes taken by the federal government over a period of years. So you go from a ninety percent uh, marginal tax rate down, and sometimes to a twenty nine percent. And yet, the wealthy are still paying more taxes than they were. Co- yeah. Collected pretty much the same amount of tax because the old days when we had the high marginal rates, there were all kinds of, uh, of tax planning devices, uh, uh, things that uh, people could do. I mean, people probably don't now remember the depletion, uh, depletion allowance where right. you could invest in oil, oil and things yeah. like that and uh, real estate. Yeah. And so on. So, uh, what happened in in nineteen? Uh, is in that 19- does that distort markets when that happens? Sure, sure. And I, that I mean, creates a lot of bad investments. Today. Well, the other thing which people don't probably like is that uh, we also distort uh, investment in housing. We probably most people think uh, more houses the more houses the better, but probably over the years we've. Uh, uh, treated housing too uh, generously and probably generate too much housing and not enough other kind of things. And, and people wondered how you get these housing uh, bubbles. It's like, well, okay, you basically make $500,000 of gains not taxable. Yeah. You can borrow money, usually four to one leverage. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so it's so between tax efficiency, uh, deductibility of the interest uh, in, in taxes, it really kind of 
said, wait a minute, if, there's a, if there was ever a tax-efficient investment, <laughs> investment, and if you have four-to-one leverage the way I see it, if yeah. you just get a 3% inflation rate increase and you've leveraged four-to-one, you're basically getting a stock market-like return. Yeah, but leverage is a... Is an elevator goes up and goes oh, down. And, and, as we well know now, right? right. Uh, as of 2008, 2009, uh, certainly a lot of problems. Well, wages are going up. Um, almost now, everybody, you know, the, uh, it was interesting to watch the last unemployment report uh, because it was terrible. I, I suspect there was a lot of noise. And, well, it was high, you know, it. high the month before. It's probably evening out over two months. But the thing is, once you get down to uh, the level where uh, – at now with unemployment, yeah. there's not a, a whole lot lower you can go and, and uh, maintain things. So again, the idea that wages are increasing is probably a, a good thing, even though we didn't have a big employment increase. But I think the other thing, there seems to be an emerging consensus, which doesn't necessarily mean it's true, that the economy actually is slowing down, but that's far short of saying we're going, headed to a recession. Uh, uh, the, unusually, the, the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, uh, Jerome Powell, talked on 60 minutes about the, you know, uh, 4% uh, a kind of pie-in-the-sky growth. 3% would be great, but probably the next couple of years we're in the 2% range. So, again, that 2% range isn't terrible. That's a lot better than – so the same thing uh, – it's not the same thing as saying that the economy is slowing slightly uh, to make the next step and saying we're moving into a recession. I remember uh, always hearing about the Goldilocks kind of economy in stock markets, not too hot, not too cool. Here we have low inflation. Excuse me. We have, uh, you know, low unemployment. Uh, we really, it, the things are just seem very moderate. It seems like right. there's, there's nothing. Of course, it, it's not, can't forecast anything well, from that. But the problem is, it, if everything is going well, the only direction is <laughs> down. Oh, come on, <laughs> economists. I'm going to talk about how optimism makes us better investors right. in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> but I noticed that average hourly lear- earnings caught my attention, up 3.4% year over year. Best of the economic recovery that uh, it began 10 years ago, nearly 10 years ago, it says, compares with 1.5% increase in the consumer price index for all urban consumers over that same time. So right. I, I remember when infl- uh, part of the inflationary concern was wage increases because that's right. such a large component. Is, yeah, it's, it's smaller now. I mean, yeah. The Fed's right. in a kind of a tight box here. You know, They see yeah. maybe a global – they see the uh, Europeans, um, central banks, actually easing again. Um, you know, maybe a world economy that everybody seems that the consensus is it's going to be softening, and yet our at-home wage growth is right. starting to say, signal to me like, wow, we, you know, inflation yeah. could could flare well, up a little bit. Well, the Fed had it's a lot easier. I mean, not, I should say easier, but it's a different world than it was twenty or thirty years ago because the, the Fed has a lot more. Uh, discretion about raising interest rates now, right now, because there's not, a lot, not even though there is some wage increase uh, uh, growth in wages, uh, there's still a lot of flexibility there. So I don't think there's any immediate uh, problem. The, the the kind of lingering problem is uh, what do you do if um, things go bad again, and if you're right. already down close to zero with the interest rate, there's not a lot of uh, measures to be taken aside from uh, quantitative easing. Like, like of course, time. I suppose barring anything. You know, other than the 2008-2000 super recession right. Right. Uh, that was, I think, artificially created. But, uh, you know, uh, the wash and rinse, typical recession, right. maybe there's enough arrows in the quiver. Right. So there's a lot of articles, guys, about uh, this being a 10-year anniversary as of March 9th right. of this great bull market. Of course, it really isn't. It's really about the six-year. It, it, to me, it started in 2013, and I think 
you won't find many really good technical people that would agree that the bull market began. Uh, it's really when you take out the all-time new highs of the last right. bull market, which I say, you know, save some of your champagne for March 28th because that's the real beginning of right. this bull There's market. There's also kind of technical issues about uh, when's there, sure. what, like, was the, the last quarter of uh, 2018 a bear market or not, right. and it's sort of right on the borderline. But it was interesting to see that so far this bull market, I assume in this article, they're talking about since 2009 has generated more than 30 trillion in wealth adjusted for inflation that's the most created during any bull market run on record edging out the 25 trillion which I, the one bull market i really remember was good to me december 1987 to 2000. See, I would have said that bull market started in 1982. Yeah. So that's where these differences is. But well, I had that one day, the, the yeah. one day uh, 1987 decline. I guess that would be it. Uh, I, I guess I'm thinking of a secular bull market. Right. That's neither here nor there. But right. uh, it just still seems, though, guys, like there's still a lot of psychological trauma uh, and financial damage related, at least psychologically in some ways. But some of it's financial because a lot of people have missed this great bull market. And it kind of reminds me, Fred, though I wasn't there, but, you know, all I heard was post of the Great Depression was how the impact, the psychological impact it had on investors for decades, even into the 60s. And uh, and you can kind of look around and see that that's that's taking place here because this has been a very unloved bull market. It hasn't been trusted, but yet it's been one of the best. And some people say it's the best. Right. you know, the other thing I noticed, guys, because we use, I've used index funds since 1990. As my, it's all I use for my clients. And in 2017, said 43% of all money in American stock market funds was in index funds. And that's pretty interesting. It surprised me. I'm not even sure that's true. Uh, because only uh, back in 2007, only 19%. I think the 19% was the right number. I suspect, Fred, you've brought it up. There's so many now exchange-traded funds and right. that are theoretically passive. That I mean, really they're are. passive, but they're passive on an index that most people probably don't want to invest in. So, so, but again, you were t- also talking about uh, uh, the length of, a, of, a, of expansion and so on. And uh, again, it's very difficult to predict the end, uh, if not impossible. And I, I always go back to uh, a meeting I went to in 2005, and the topic of the meeting was the uh, – the uh, uh, bond bubble and the upcoming crash in bonds. Well, it's been uh, now 14 years ago, and bonds never, even though the interest rate was really low then, it went even lower. And then the last year or so, they say, well, it can't possibly go any lower than they actually uh, have. So it's, it's very difficult. I, I, obviously, you're not going to probably expect bonds to be uh, strong for the next 10 years. But right. on the other hand, you, you can't really tell when the, when the cycle ends. No, nope, you, you can't. Uh, I read an article in Harvard Business Review, and, and I'm, unfortunately I didn't note who did this survey, but the, Harvard was writing about it, the, re, the Business Review. It said they surveyed more than 2,000, this is about the optimism. They, I thought this was interesting. They surveyed more than 2,000 Americans testing for optimism, financial health, and attitudes and behaviors around money. <coughs> Excuse me. They claimed they used scientifically validated measures, and they went into a number of them. It said after controlling for wealth, Income skills and other demographics data clearly showed that optimists were significantly more likely to experience better financial health than pessimists and engage in healthier habits with their money. A couple more comments. Optimists are more likely to seek out and follow advice from someone they trust. And the most compelling finding was how the optimists felt 
This is what I thought was striking. Reporting, the optimist that is, reporting that they stressed about finances 145 fewer days each year as compared to the pessimists. That kind of makes sense. Right. I think you need to make a distinction between a, an optimist who's really great, someone who's overconfident, though, if that's the kiss of death for investing. So you need to be optimistic but not uh, necessarily assume that you're a master of the universe. And I don't think optimism means <laughs> everything's going to turn out beautifully. It's yeah. just saying, look, there's, there's going to be yeah. good and bad things, but in the, uh, in the, out, the long-term lifetime outcome tends to work out. Yeah, if someone wants to – there's a, a book by Steven Pinker about uh, – how things actually are better. So if you, you want to be uh, uh, buoyed up that you're talking about Speaking almost every major oh. health, uh, uh, okay. uh, well, economic well-being, uh, uh, reduction in violence, things are better now than they have been forever. Speaking of that, I read Jim Nolan's article in today's paper. I yeah. guess he's going to stop doing that particular article. But uh, he admitted that basically he had uh, a darker view of yeah. of the world. I think that's his own personal uh, <laughs> well, sure, that's understandable. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess if I could make a case for either one, right? Uh, but I think the stronger case is... Well, I mean, you can make a case that, that you're, at my age. You can say, well, things were different back in the 60s or 50s or whatever it is. They were, but there there some things that were better and a lot of things that were worse. And right. For a lot it. of people, they were a lot worse. And for yeah. some, they were better than they are. And they probably, you know, some of them have switched places. Yeah, and, and this idealized uh, view that uh, you... Uh, in the 1950s, you graduated from high school and walked into a factory and got a high-paying job and uh, did the, that the rest of your life with no hassle, no no uh, no sweat. I don't think is the way I remember the <laughs> 1950s. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, uh, but they, certainly a lot of people uh, have that uh, vision of yeah. that's what it was. Well, and I don't. It doesn't really surprise me that optimists are more financially well off than pessimists either, because if you think just from a practical standpoint. If someone's really pessimistic, they're never going to invest in an investment that has high expected returns because those are the types of investments that have a lot of fluctuation. Right. So it's like if someone's really pessimistic, they think the world's coming to an end or whatever their theory is of the day for why they should be pessimistic, they're not going to be able to stay invested in a portfolio that's invested in equity securities like stocks or um, basically anything that has a high expected return because they're the minute anything does go a little bit south, they're probably going to be like, well, see, I was right. Time to get out. And, yeah, and there's a lot of reasons at that time. I read a, I read an interesting article. I don't have it in front of me, but it was basically the paraphrase. was like, okay, even if God managed money, and it said if he looked back over the last 10 years and knew ahead of time the 10 stocks that were going to be the 10 biggest gainers of that last 10 years, you know, as if he was a money manager, he would have been fired or she. Yeah. Uh, and that is because <clears throat> you take these stocks like Netflix and everything, they went through so many 50 and 60% declines, and there were so many periods where they underperformed the broad market that if they were, so even if you had perfect clairvoyance, you know, it'd still be, it still gets tough, and you know, this gets to this pessimism and optimism. It's hard enough when you're an optimist to find all the reasons to not, to, uh, to stay the course and not to give up and to start thinking that things are different yeah. this time. I went to a, a meeting uh, a while back, and it was uh, talking about investing based on environmental factors and uh, things like that, which I don't necessarily believe in. But the argument was if you choose a company that uh, has a good environmental record and so on, they're going to do better in the long run. And then the, uh, if you go back a year, the, the best example of that was Peachy and e Right. In California, they had all kinds of environmental concerns. They don't uh, – they were – accommodating the, the state government and so on, and now they're bankrupt based on their environmental activities. 
and that's simply because uh, uh, someone's trying to call me. I want to make sure someone <laughs> make sure they're not on the air accidentally from my watch. Um, yeah, so you know, it, it's that. Cl- I know a guy, uh, a really smart guy from MIT, that was doing a lot of risk management modeling for them and trying to get them to yeah. understand their risks. And it's all about rolling up the risks. I mean, what are yeah. the chance of one pipeline blowing up? But when you got thousands of them, and he yeah. said it's a lot of companies have a very difficult time with they, what he what he terms is rolling up the risks of all these. Yeah, right now, like uh, I mean, uh, you look at the index today; the Dow isn't doing very well. Right. But the reason it's not doing very well is because of Boeing. Boeing. Yeah. And so I, I assume that Boeing is one of the most uh, careful companies in the world in terms of uh, taking uh, safety seriously. But you, you can't avoid everything. And uh, I'm going to switch a little bit here to retirement uh, for the rest of the show, just kind of focus on that. And David, you re- re- recently wrote a blog. Do you have your retirement MBA? Um, what got you to write that? I mean, what, these idea, ideas click in your head, but kind of like, I have to write about that. Yeah, so I actually read a book. So when I lived in Austin, Texas, I went to see one of the professors speak, and he taught a class to their MBA students. And it was about happiness and basically um, the things that people do that sabotage their happiness and the things that you can do to make yourself happier. He was a positive psychologist is kind of the term for it. And he wrote a book, and uh, I was reading the book, and it really got me thinking about how it could apply to retirees. Because at the end, he basically says, look, if you sum everything up, the three things that seem to be consistently correlated to leading a happier life, it's having a sense of mastery. So mastery, like you're making progress over something, you kind of have a purpose, something that you're working on and improving at. The other one, and probably the biggest one, is belonging. So a sense of belonging, having good relationships in your life. And then the third one is autonomy. So feeling like you get to kind of make decisions as far as what you do during the day and kind of have control over your own life as opposed to feeling like you're doing things because you have to do them. And I don't know what made me think of that in terms of retirement, but I think I had just... It was relatable. It was relatable, and and I think this happens a lot because I'm dealing with retirees eight hours a day, and I was thinking, you know, if you look at those three things, it's really interesting how that applies to retirees, because one of the things that got me thinking about is a lot of people go into retirement thinking, okay, I don't have to work anymore. I'm going to be ecstatic all the time because I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And what's interesting is it seems just anecdotally, I don't really have evidence to back this up, but I think it is out there that a lot of times people really do kind of love the first few weeks of retirement because they're kind of high on life and the fact that they don't have to go into work. But then I get a lot, a good number of clients that say it, they kind of go into this lull after a month or so where they're kind of like, what do I do with myself? And they actually find themselves being almost less happy than when they were working. And I think the, a big reason for that is if you look at retirement, what happens is you have a huge uptick in autonomy. Within reason, you can do kind of what you want when you want. Obviously, not everyone can fly in a private jet. But, you know, if you're accustomed to a certain lifestyle, you're financially prepared for that lifestyle. At, at that point, you can basically do what you want when you want. But I think at the same time, you end up losing the sense of mastery that you got from your career and the belonging that you got from your career. Because those two things really, that, that is a big part of work, although there's negative aspects to it. It does provide a sense of purpose to your life. It pro- provides a sense of progress and mastery over some domain. 
And then there's obviously the social aspect, especially working for if you work for a bigger employer, you have coworkers that you spend time with and you end up becoming friends with them. And why why is the framework like how does that tie in it just because those are just those three trade offs? I, I don't completely understand what you're asking. Well, I'm just, you know, you have this framework, and is it just the fact that th- those are the three factors in that framework, and then you can identify with those, and, and you actually kind of, now that you see it live up front, you're saying like, wow, that, that actually kicks in. Because one of the things we talk about a lot is, you know, the perfect retirement situation is where you have enough money to sleep at night and enough purpose to wake up. And that's kind of that, that purpose-driven uh that 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 seems to be what that seems to be a part that a lot of people struggle with is if if they don't have enough purpose and that doesn't mean you got to work i think you know maybe one point that maybe you're you're kind of alluding to paul is that as you do retire you you really have to retire to something else and so you you fill that void of the mastery or possibly fill that void of the belonging that you had in your work days uh with maybe something else that could be uh volunteer work it could be doing something as a different you know part-time job it could be being part of groups or getting involved with some sort of the community that you weren't involved with before so you fill in or backfill that mastery or you have a sense of belonging in a community whereas you're potentially just sitting in your home and looking looking at the clock what do i do next well and i think one of the motivations for writing it is to get people to think about this before they retire so that you don't get bl- blindsided by it. It's like, look, if we know that this is an issue that's out there, let's let's point it out to people who are approaching retirement so that they can think about how they're going to build mastery into their life and how they're going to make sure that they maintain a sense of belonging when they do retire. And, you know, money will help you fund a purpose, but it won't, won't help you find it necessarily. Fred, how, you know, in your personal situation, not to get too personal, but you're still doing a lot of consulting and on yeah. boards, and you keep pretty active. Look like you're more active than me, but I think it's a purpose thing, or just that's a, just what you like? I, that's what I like to do. Again, uh, happiness is an elusive uh, kind of thing because uh, human nature has a kind of uh, self-regulating thing. So if you, uh, the, the old example is you win the lottery, you're elated for a few weeks, and then after that, you kind of go back to your uh, normal thing, or you have an accident and you're uh, 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 hurt in some way, and that's a devastating sort of thing, but then eventually you kind of go back to the middle. So people don't take into account, they sort of assume what's now is what, what the good thing is, so you have to be willing to kind of challenge yourself. There's an example, like someone is upset uh, because their plane is delayed for two hours going to Portland, you say, well... 150 years ago, you'd had to take a covered wagon and, right. and a pretty good chance of dying on the way to get there in, in three months. And now you're upset because you it's going to take you an extra hour or two to get to Portland as opposed to uh, the normal flight. So, again, people incorporate uh, the things they expect and then uh, – Yeah, uh, quickly. It, yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting. So I, so I think retirement, though, is a matter of, of, of uh, your personal interest. Some people actually – and I, I like to not have a lot of uh, – demands that makes it easier to uh, it's basically a, you're, you choose what you want yeah, to do and, and that's what retirement is retirement is not i mean if you retire because you're unhappy with your right. uh previous situation then maybe you want to have a program where you should i, I sort of uh control your, your time own, let your own uh, uh interest sort of uh, dictate which way you go in fact well, I've, I've reduced it to the fact that i think that the, the 
what's so attractive about retirement is for the first time to control your schedule on your terms. I think that to me is almost it. Yeah, and I think it gives you the potential to actually enhance your feelings of mastery and enhance your feelings of belonging because you can pursue fields that you particularly enjoy, whether they generate an income for you or not, versus when you're working or when you're younger. Sometimes you have to, you know, especially if you have a family to support and there's certain expenses baked into your lifestyle, you know, maybe you can't go be an artist and basically have no income, even though that's your true passion. You have to, you know, work a job that you don't, you know, maybe it's okay, (coughs) but you don't absolutely love it. When you're in retirement, you can basically pursue whatever interests you the most. In fact, the client I went to visit uh, down in Florida, um, he's learned how to play the piano. He's gotten involved in jazz music and, you know, in, in, in groups kind of like playing a little bit in that. So completely just kind of changing, switching gears. And that's something we always wanted to do and able to do it. I did notice though, and and it surprised me a little bit when I talked to a lot of uh, people that are live in the same building as my brother, John down in treasure Island, um, to talk to them in a probing way, you know, because yeah, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and make it, well, how could you stand to be this bored? Because maybe that what's boring to me is not boring, you know, yeah. it's, it's perfectly fine for another person. So there still seems to be a large percentage of the people that are just happy to just kind of chill yeah. and not have a lot on their plate in retirement. And that to them is the perfect retirement. So it really... Yeah. There's also another aspect. If you're in a, have a job where you have some authority and people uh, take you seriously, some of that uh, goes away when you, when you retire. For example, I've been on uh, various boards at the time. When you're, when you're on the board, uh, money managers think you're really engaging and funny and uh, your questions are great, and then you're off the board, uh, you disappear. So I know a lot of surgeons that have, uh, that have retired under my watch, and that I was one of the things that really hit some of them yeah. was, you know, gosh, I used to run that clinic practically, and now I go in there and I'm, they don't hardly know who I am after so they don't care, right? of time, and they really don't care. And that it's a bit, that's a so you're right. And when you have a, I think a job of power, it does probably become even more difficult. Um, one of our most popular blogs last year uh, was six questions to answer before retirement. And I don't remember which one of you guys, uh, I think Daniel wrote that one, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And I want to cover some of those questions. So I'm just going to kind of go into it. The first one, and I just want everybody to, to add in what they can. How much will I need? So these are the six questions you might want to think about before retirement. The first one's, how much will I need to spend during retirement? So that is obviously something we probably want to know as the advisor, but how often, guys, when we ask a client that question, can they come close? It's tough. I think most people, if if they're honest, they probably say, I, I really don't know how much I spend month to month because the money is there and I spend it and it's gone. But if, if you look at uh, how much money you spend, net of savings, net of the, the taxes you pay, and you say, maybe it cost me $2,500, $3,000 to live when you add in food expense, your home and bills, that's really what you need to be able to have at a minimum to replace what you're doing now and hopefully maybe a little bit more so you can enhance your life in retirement and do some of the fun things you wanted to do. So it just starts looking at the, the most essentials, and then you can add up a little bit from there. But still people have a difficult time, don't you think? So that's where we're then we have to switch to, okay, well, I, they don't have a clue, and which is more often than not. Well, tell me you're both still working. Um, what can I, If you can go to their tax return to find out, you can sort of narrow into it, but you say, okay, how big is your paycheck by the time you pay your health care and your 401K and your taxes? How big are your 
you know, your joint combined income, net after tax, and you can kind of start there. But don't you think, and, and I guess most people come to us somewhat unprepared, and that's okay, because we can always get there. We always seem to get there, but do you think it would be make sense to track, if you think you're going to retire a year or two from now, to start tracking not spending how much on cable, but to generally at the end of the month, how much have I spent? If you can, if you can track it somehow and start zeroing in on a little better idea. Yeah, I think that's the ideal scenario. Now I know most people probably won't do that just because of the time it takes. But <laughs> you know, we've talked about it before. Where now it's it's easier than ever because you can just attach your credit cards and, and bank accounts to a finance tracking app, and it'll basically tell you how you spend your money. Um, that's kind of ideal. And then, of course, you want to take into account how things will change once you retire because things typically do change when you're retired. I mean, usually discretionary spending on restaurant meals and activities go up. A lot of times car expenses. Certain things go down because you're not commuting to work. Yeah. And uh, the next question that Daniel put in there is, I think it's a good one. If I could wave a magic wand, what would my retirement look like? And I don't think that has to be purely financial. I think that can be like, okay, what would I be doing? Where would that be? Who would I be with? How often? Uh, things like that. I love that question because it's so open-ended. It, he got it from me, by the way. Oh, did he? Well, now I like it a little bit less. I liked it when Daniel <laughs> had the idea. But I love it just because it's, it simply allows the retiree or your, the person you're speaking with to think, wow, what, what would give me the most sense of joy? Regardless of my maybe constraints in life, what gives me a joy? And then as the advisor, we have a, a way to say, okay, let's pretend that we can do that. How can we go about that, uh, funding that joy, making that, that excitement of retirement possible? And sometimes you can tell when you're talking to a prospective client, you know, they'll light up a certain thing, a pop in to, you know, we'll be talking about. And all of a sudden they're just smiling and smiling. And, and I'll even say, hey, I noticed that your reaction when we talked about that, you really picked up. And you know, tell me about that. Tell me more about that. It's interesting to what you can really watch for sometimes mm-hmm. and not. Uh, the next one, and this is one we all talk about a lot on the front end because it's, you know, we're, we'll sit here and they'll say, well, we have this much money and we have these income streams. Okay, looks like things are fine. Now you have to go to, are there any financial boulders running down the hill at you? You guys have heard me say that. We all kind of say that now. And what we're really talking about is they can come from a, the couple of primary directions I think about are, are mom and dad still alive? Yes or no. If they are, tell me about them and how old they are and their health and their financial situation. Do you think you will ever, you know, you will ever need to fund, you know, their long-term health care or just help make them live? And that's either yes or no and to what degree. The other one is for so many people, they have adult children that are going through some type of transition in life. It can be a it can be a divorce, it can be a job loss, it can be you know, a combination of things. And those are other financial boulders that can run down the hill at you. And, and you need to talk about that with your advisor and be realistic and say, well, and sometimes it gets a little contentious. You know, you have different spouses that have different views on how much they're gonna help that child through that transition. You know, one of them is a little stronger opinion than the other. And you know, we just try to call, so often guys, we have to just call a truce to some of these things and try to get in the middle of that conflict a little bit, come up with a reasonable answer. You know, another one I think you should probably add to this list is what happens if one of the spouses dies at a relatively early age, earlier than expected? Because a lot of times, if it's someone who receives a pension, the surviving spouse might only get half that pension, sometimes none of it. 
And I mean, sometimes you get 100%, but it's something to make sure you look at and say, okay, is the surviving spouse going to be okay if we lose that income? And even if you don't have a pension, if you're both receiving Social Security, the surviving spouse is going to basically get the higher of the two, but you don't get both anymore. Right. So there's going to be an income reduction, and you need to make sure that that spouse is going to be okay. And if not, then there's things you can do. I mean, you could theoretically, you could buy life insurance, or you could spend less now trying to build up um, a buffer. Uh, There's solutions, but it's important to To be aware of that potential financial boulder. Uh, The next one is, what does not working mean to me? Uh, it isn't an all or nothing. I think that's what Daniel was getting at in the blog. It's just for some people, they'll, they'll walk in talking about retirement, but by the time an hour, hour and a half goes by, it's it's not that they really want to retire. Maybe they want to just work at something different, f- different hours, something they enjoy a little bit more. And that's a key, I think, conversation piece as well. As well. One of our new clients, he's going to be working part-time for a while right. just because he kind of wants to, and he's, he's doing something totally different than he did before. He in it's something that he enjoys more than his old job and it gives him a little bit of extra spending money and he just kind of it, it's like a triple benefit and he's retiring on the younger side too and i think that's particularly compelling for people who are retiring at a younger age because you still a lot of times they still just have more desire to work at, at a little bit of something just maybe something different than they've been doing the last 30 years of their life I think I, this makes me think of another one that you mentioned that we're getting somebody now clients in their late 50s early 60s retiring is probably back on the burner again is what are you going to do about health care uh, if you're 60 or 62 or 63 we have to bridge that gap to medicare and many times and you guys can correct me if i'm wrong i think to them it seems like that's a retirement killer but since it's for such a short period of time, usually it has a pretty modest impact on the plan. But it's certainly one you need to think about. You also, I think, should be careful about uh, being overly optimistic. Uh, sorry about oh, no. about your uh, options in retirement. For example, I had a relative once who had a job and was fine, and he liked to build furniture. So he decided to retire and go into the furniture manufacturing business. And, that didn't turn out to be a, a good choice, well, or opening, it, opening a bed and breakfast may not be the right thing for <laughs> most people. And that kind of is his last one, uh, it was what trade-offs should I make to achieve my optimal retirement? We call these levers. We have certain levers that we can make things better or worse in certain areas, and, and that gets down to it. It's like, well, what's my risk capacity? If I'm going to yeah. try to do this, what am I willing to put at risk? How, you know, what do, am I going to risk money I don't have and don't need, you know, Am I going to risk money I have and need for money I don't have and don't need is what I meant to say. Yeah, I feel like that's particularly important for entrepreneurial ventures as opposed to, you know, if you're going and working for a company part-time, you're getting a salary, that's one thing. But, yeah, if you're trying to start a business and it takes a substantial upfront investment and then there's no guarantee it's even going to pan out. So lay out some of the the trade-offs that typical retirees might have to think about. Well, I think the big ones – by far probably the biggest consideration is when you retire. So if the earlier you retire, the less you're going to be able to spend. The later you retire, the more you're going to be able to spend, even if you don't save those extra years because that's fewer years that you have to fund in retirement that you have to withdraw from your investment portfolio. And it's more years that your existing investment assets get to continue building um, before you start pulling money out. So that can have a, a big impact. But then Okay, we we know that that's a trade-off. You just have to decide, well, is it worth it to me to work an extra X years 
to have this extra income? And the answer is going to be different for everyone. But you can give them a basis to make the answer, right? You're going to price it, as we call it. You're going to say, well, here's what working two more years does for you. And then that's either enough to make them happy or it's not. It's going to keep working or it's not. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of times people are pleasantly surprised as far as, you know, maybe they can retire two, three years earlier than they were initially planning on. Because I think a lot of times people anchor to the standard numbers of, you know, I'm going to retire at age 65 when Medicare starts. And a lot of that's around health care. Right. Um, or maybe at 60. It's just people tend to anchor to these round numbers. And a lot of times when we do plans, we show them like, look, you can spend more than you're spending now and retire sometimes right now or retire, you know, multiple years before. And then if you work until that date, you're going to have, you know, X dollars per year more of spending. And, it, you know, then they have to decide, okay, well, yeah, maybe that's nice. But, but a lot of times people say, well, I'm not even spending that now and I'm doing everything I want to do. So why continue working unless they just like their job and they want to. So it's just, it's one of those things once it you depends. understand the trade-offs, I then think, you make okay, that customized so decision. I think that's the key is being able to price these decisions so that they can understand those trade-offs. Because a lot of times people don't know what that what they're really trading off. Because another big one I suspect of these levers and, and, and trade-offs we have is how our money's going to be invested. And at the big one, I'm really gonna just talk about asset allocation. How much of our money are we going to have in stable investments that are predictable and how much are we going to invest in the great companies of America and the world which have higher expected returns but come with much more unpredictability. Uh, that decision, as it turns out, can have a big impact on some areas of life. And primarily, I guess the t- two biggest ones would be either how much money we're going to leave our people we love or institutions we dearly love or how much more potential lifestyle enhancement could I have if we're not really, you know, if we're going to, if we're going to put up with more fluctuation by having a higher stock market exposure than maybe we, we personally need, uh, and our goal is not to leave our kids, or maximize our, what we leave our kids, well, then maybe a higher stock market allocation, you're going to actually go that way because it gives you a higher probability of an enhanced lifestyle in retirement. And maybe that would be important to you. If it's not, then it wouldn't make sense. So it's a, it's a big trade-off. It's probably the biggest trade-off for people that want to get to retirement. When I think of the young people that are starting out in their jobs, you know, you can only save so much. You have some control of saving. Um, you don't really have control of returns, but you have control of your asset allocation during that 30 or 40 years of accumulation. And that asset allocation choice might be the biggest, uh, you know, the biggest issue or uh, outcome difference maker uh, than anything else, but it's also important in retirement that that asset allocation decision. It's it's per, it's a uh, that's probably one we spend more most of our time dialing in on, so that we don't we don't put them into a situation that they didn't expect, and yet it gives them you know best chance of achieving everything they want to do while they're alive. And I, well, and I oh go ahead. I was just gonna say I think so much of what a good advisor does is it they provide the options to a client that they didn't even know maybe were even possible to them. So yes, we do the work of pricing each of those options. Sometimes those options may have never even entered into somebody's mind in the first place. And now you have an entire new set of decisions to make. Wow, I didn't know I could retire three years earlier than I thought. 
now I know the price of it, but I didn't even think that was an option. And you can give somebody such a high quality of life by providing options that they didn't know they had. And that's really by pointing out, really probably starting out with possibility first. What's possible from the broadest extent? Because I find it very difficult for people to start talking about what their goals might be until they understand within some sense of proportionality what's even possible. So, you know, if they think, well, I, I can't work, I have to work until I'm 70, uh, we might quickly think in our minds, just doing our mental math, saying, no, they could probably retire in two years, you know, and th- th- they had no idea. Now, they may not want to retire in two years, but they walk out of the office automatically going to work. When they put the key in the car, they feel differently than they did the day before. Uh, so that's a big one. And, uh, and then I guess in the financial boulder area, we talked a little bit about it, but it's potential long-term care needs. And I don't know if I sent it to you guys. Uh, I think it was Fidelity. Just somebody did, did a, a major company did a study on the probabilities, and I'll send that to you. But, you know, that's where you know, that becomes a personal preference, too. Like how, how much of a potential long-term care need do I, do I want to live as if it's a five-year period, certain, at 24-hour care? Well, guess what? We're going to have to earmark, earmark a lot of your lifestyle towards that goal for most people. Or is it, you know, or in that both of us might have it. Or is it we're just going to live as if, okay, the chances are, the best chance is one of us will and probably for two or three or four years. And then so you start having, that's a trade-off too, really, when I think about it, of how much you're willing to risk on the back end of life for a greater lifestyle during retirement. And well, and also even the type of care. You know, if you're someone who's adamant that you never want to go into a nursing home and you're going to have 24-7 home so care if you want. 200 grand around here. I- exactly. So that's going to reduce how much you can spend now because you need to make sure that you can fund that in the final years of your life. So uh, that is a, a major consideration. And these are basically, when, when I think about all the planning we do for our clients that are substantially all retired, those are basically what we just talked about, kind of the main touch points uh, that I can think of. And of course, there's a lot of psychological profiling that's also going on. For instance, if a client's a real pessimist, uh, I'm probably not going to take them on as a client. Not not because they don't have enough money. It's just we're probably not going to relate. And it, you know, I wouldn't be a good choice for, for that person <clears throat> and difficult people. But those are the highlights. The When can I retire? How can I retire? What risks are facing me? How are we going to deal with those? Uh, then asset allocation. And I think, is it fair to say that we start fine-tuning once we get kind of – you'll hear me, guys. You'll hear me talking about we're going to fence it in first a little bit. And then we'll we'll get that, then we'll really tune in to a little tighter degree and really try to get it just right for them. That, yeah, I, I think it's fair I, to I say. look at the fine-tuning stuff like, okay, now that we have this plan, we know how much you can spend when you're going to retire. It's like, well, what can we do to minimize taxes on the, you know, the withdrawals that we take from your portfolio um, or just from where we locate things in your portfolio? Yep. Um, when are we going to claim Social Security? I just thought of another big one that I, it shouldn't have escaped me because it's so often people have to make a decision of lump sum. Do I take a lump sum pension or do I take the pension payout for the rest of my life? That's a big one. And that's very difficult, I think, to do unless you put it in the backdrop of a complete comprehensive plan because you, you're probably even odds you're going to make the wrong choice. Yeah. If you and that choice it. is going to be coming for a lot of uh, state retirees. There's a a law that was passed several years ago that's going to be implemented where people do have a choice between a, a payout or a, a new Oh, that's that's interesting. So there's a we I've I've uh, 
created a specific calculator to hone in on that question. If anybody has that, uh, if that anybody's facing that, feel free to contact us at three five six fourteen hundred. Well, guys, thanks for uh, joining me. Thanks, Fred. Uh, I'm glad you could be here today. Thanks, Ryan, the newly minted certified financial planner professional. Till next time. Thanks for listening to Paul Rees on the Money. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.